What can the life of Mary teach Protestants? Matthew Milliner is assistant professor of art at Wheaton College and has a special interest in the prospects and pitfalls of visual theology. He is a two-time appointee to the Curatorial Advisory Board of the United States Senate and winner of Redeemer University's Emerging Public Intellectual Award. His forthcoming book is entitled The Last Madonna, Origin and Insight of a Global Icon. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, So let's kind of frame this in terms of the landscape and why this conversation is important. Um, And in one of your articles, you you kind of set the stage by using the phrase ecumenical winter. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean by Mm -hmm. that? And what does that have to do with kind of the broad landscape? It's not original to me. It's been thrown around a while. uh, People simply suggesting that you have the Edinburgh movement begins in the early 20th century where the church has finally said because of mission work you know we really should be talking to each other and that culminated in organizations like the world council of churches the national council of churches which in my theological education were just kind of these moribund like what happened there Um, but what really happened is from 1910 onwards you did have all of this hope that the churches could be reunified. All of this was going on up and and really you look at the World Council of Churches statements from the mid 20th century and you're like, whoa, this is Christocentric. It's brilliant. It's like new begin-ish. It's it's thrilling. And then just stuff happened. And sometimes people say, how dare you critique the World Council of Churches? And I say, well, you know, there were rumors flowing around that there were KGB members on the WCCC leadership. We actually now know that those rumors were true. <laughs> there have been declassified documents. So, yes, there was a degree of corruption in the World yeah. Council of Churches, and it's like it doesn't thrill me because, of course, the, the idea doctrine divides and service unites didn't quite play out because, you know what, if, if all that matters is service, then why don't I just go do that and why don't I have to be under the banner of Jesus at all? So that's what people mean by ecumenical winter, sort of this collapse. And then, of course, there were evangelicals and Catholics together, which was another attempt to bring this. And many people see sort of now kind of a a collapse of that. You know, Richard John Newhouse and Chuck Colson was a certain moment in American life that is no more. And so there's a sort of retrenchment, sort of a, a your, your trad crowd amongst the Catholics that could have little interest, and then evangelicals saying we've got to rediscover Luther. And I'm sympathetic to both of those, and um, it's really hard to bring it together now. So when we say ecumenical winter, I'm kind of reviving that language that's been around for a couple of decades to look at the long view of ecumenism in the 20th century, and now in the 21st, and saying you know a lot of people aren't that excited about ecumenism anymore, but I think we need to be. And please don't tell me that because I'm excited about ecumenism that I don't take theology seriously. And that's where art history comes in. Yeah, I was just going to press you on that. So what's the connecting point then for you with art history? Because people have, people don't think that images do theological work. And there's been this, if I may be so bold, almost condescending attitude from some verbally centered theologians, oh yeah, and you images over there, you know what, you go, because you can help us here and there. But now, right back to the way we've always done theology. And on the one hand, I feel kind of rude saying that because I'm appreciative that people have said images matter, but it always is one little, you know, pat on the hat. Like, hey, oh yeah, there's art too, great, thanks. Um, Every couple years we'll give you 
kind of one little slot. Now, I'm not saying that art historians should take over the whole theological world. What I'm simply saying is art historians have always been doing theology. Because Jesus came in the flesh, he was paintable. In our terms, he was pixelatable. If Jesus was with you and you wanted to take a quick selfie with him to post on Facebook and you uploaded that selfie to Facebook, um, would Jesus appear? It's an interesting question to ask people because if they say no, they're basically Gnostic. Yes, Jesus could have been put on Facebook. That's what the Christian tradition came to realize, which is why icons were okay, which means that the Christian church has always been doing theology visually, but has never been given the credit for it. Thankfully, this thing named art history came along to try to chart those developments, and they're hopelessly secular in certain pockets, so they don't have ears for this. So what we need to do is realize that there's this incredible resource out there that does theological work that actually transcends our ecclesial divisions that are primarily structured on verbal disagreements. And so art can just kind of cross the demilitarized zone. It can make connections that aren't there. And it's, please, again, and I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying this to hypothetical people out there. To everyone. Yeah. Don't tell me I'm not being serious theologically because I'm into art. Oh, please, because I'm, I'm saying that if you want to be serious theologically, Jesus is visualizable, and therefore we have to take that seriously. Does that mean that all images are good? There's a real kind of naive moment in the, the rediscovery of art as theology, of thinking, oh, sure, art is great. Let's just bring art into the church. That would be like saying, hey, verbal theology is great no matter what. It's like, right. no. There's really bad verbal theology, and I would be the first to say there's really bad visual theology. And sometimes the way you get the worst of it is by not taking it seriously as a theological medium. And so we just there's no discernment around it. Right. It's like, oh, it's an image. Great. Let's just throw it up in the church. Don't throw it up in the church. Think about what it's doing. You're not going to tinker with the liturgy. Wait for something to be field tested through church history. That's what the resource of church history is there for. What stuff has survived? What stuff preaches? Well, art history, the liturgy has been through that process, which is why we should be very reverent and careful in tinkering. In the same way, art history, the best images have been vetted, and we have access to them now like never before. You can Google a great art historical image, print it out, put it onto a piece of wood, bam, you have an icon, you can work with it. Yeah. So it matters. Oh, goodness, it sure does matter. And it just all every single theological question that has put the entire church at loggerheads and sometimes literally split the church can be readdressed visually. Yeah. Every single theological question. We're not even scratching the surface on that. The Visual Commentary on Scripture is a project that Ben Quash is working on, along with many other brilliant people at the King's College at King's University in London. And they're just like, wow, it's time to do just like we've had the early church commentary on Scripture. Let's do it with art. I mean, things are just getting started. Anytime someone says, oh, we've had a kind of theology and art kick for a couple of years, and now we're going to go back to the way things have always done. They're, no, 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 no. We are just beginning this journey. Yeah. So let's get really concrete, and let's talk about Mary. So you teach at a Protestant evangelical school at Wheaton College. I do. And you have a course about Mary. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And I'm curious especially to kind of hear... What drove that idea forward Mm -hmm. and made that feel really important to you? And I'm also curious about what you've learned from journeying through that material with your students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I did a dissertation on Marian icons at 
Princeton University, and I got to know them really, really well. <laughs> when you start teaching and you're thrown, you go from the marination tank onto the open flames of the grill. In your first year teaching, you're like, I want to teach what I know because I've got a lot in my head and i got to yeah. get it out. So I thought, oh, this is a little edgy for Wheaton. You know, are they going to think I'm trying to convert everyone to Catholicism or Orthodoxy? Um, but I said, all right, can I teach a course on the Virgin Mary? So not only was this welcomed, but I found out that the same semester, another professor was doing the same thing in history. So there, there were two courses that ran. So I was like, okay, I guess this is fine. And you had I, some company there. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I encountered no resistance whatsoever. Um, only, like, sure, give it a shot. So I taught this course, and we have Catholic and Orthodox students at Wheaton, and they came to the course, and each time they've, they've never let us caricature their traditions, which is so wonderful to have the gift of a student. You're like, hey, when you say the Catholics, it's like, no, you're talking about Leroy. When you say the Orthodox, you're talking about Sally. I mean, it's just that was so important because, of course, Mary has been a stumbling block of church unity for a long and causing church disunity for a long time. So that was a big part of it. But we also... And there's a sense in which, you know, Catholics and Orthodox might hear the sea, they're on their way, right? They're about to realize that their tradition has been completely wrong about Mary. Well, actually, we found that that perception is itself completely wrong because there's a rich history of Protestant reflection on Mary, and we have caricatured our own tradition in attempts to distinguish ourselves from the Catholics and the Orthodox. So it became this ecumenical experiment. And it became also a way of bringing feminist thought into the evangelical community, not saying, this is so important, not saying, well, see, feminism has all the answers and we evangelicals are hopeless and behind the times. Because if you actually do your homework on feminism, you will realize that there's a real bankruptcy right now, primarily because of a secular bargain that one wave of the feminist movement took in the 60s and 70s that has pretty much meant they've run out of gas. And they're saying we need to conjure up possibilities like post-secular feminism that takes the majority of the women of the world who happen to be religious <laughs> seriously. And so it was a way of also saying, okay, and one of the things that one finds out is those early waves of kind of Mary Daly secular feminism that said that you have to leave the Christian tradition in order to hold on to your feminist principles, that it, in some senses, was deeply naive in not understanding church history enough. Because it, let's imagine for a moment that you think, okay, I, I've, I've concluded that all of Christian history is hopelessly patriarchal. Well, then what do you do with Mary? How do you explain that she just never goes away, and arguably there are more images of her than of Jesus? in the history of Christianity. And pretty much it's that discovery that people have made that have said, we need to go back to this tradition and ask another question. People like Tina Beatty, which may be the most important book I read in my graduate work. She has a book where she said, I thought I would have to go to the Gnostic Gospels for liberating things about women. And it turns out that if I purely limited myself to orthodox mainstream sources in the Christian tradition, that's where the real liberation for women was. And it was through the tradition about the Virgin Mary. And another point of deep naivete was to think that in order for women to be embraced in the church, we have to alter the liturgy. 
we have to say creator, redeemer, sustainer, which of course Instead is... Instead of father's son's It's, spirit, it's, it's a know. modalist heresy. It's like, come on. You, are you saying Jesus wasn't there at the creation? Are you saying the spirit wasn't hovering over the waters at creation? Well, you are saying that when you say father, son, holy spirit, and you limit those roles, right? So that was one way. And then that's, I think, there's a naivete there. Another naivete is to suggest that we need to turn Mary into a goddess. You see, that'll work. And it's amazing to see male theologians, boff among them, who have made that suggestion be lambasted by people like Sarah Coakley, great, the greatest Anglican theologian in the world, um, saying, you know what, thanks, dude, but we don't need your favors because that's outside the realm of Christian orthodoxy. What makes Mary so incredible is her humanness. And the way this is the line that emerged as I taught this course over and over again is that I would like bait students, and sometimes too much, because sometimes I would I would freak them out at the beginning. Um, but I would like... That sets up a class pretty it, well, though, right? It does, like, it does. But then you have to have like the cool off lunches, like, whoa, mm-hmm. I didn't mean that. But I, I say, I'm like, okay, let's, let's just, you know, let's just imagine. Well, don't, shouldn't we just tinker around and say, instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, shouldn't we say that, you know, um, that, uh, you know, God is mother too? Now... I get it, right? God made women. He made wombs. He's the designer of them. And God is neither male nor female because in Genesis, it says that male and female together image him. So he's beyond gender. Still, I haven't answered the question, shouldn't we call God mother? Well, here's what I say to bait students in this way. And I say, well, I'll tell you something even more radical in the idea that God is mother. Because I, I think, you know, yeah, women do need to be honored. And, um, and the Christian tradition has failed in this respect. So how about this? How about instead of God is mother, we will suggest something that the most radical daring of secular feminists had never dreamed of. And that is that God has a mother. It's just like yeah. that God had to nurse from a woman's breast, that God made his home a womb. That is the ultimate dignity afforded, which is why long before the 1960s, you had like the 360s and the 340s where you had Nestorius, the heretic, being shouted down in the streets of Constantinople because he wasn't giving Mary a sufficient role. And when Proclus, who was his chief enemy in the streets of Constantinople, as they were debating whether or not Mary should be called mother of God, Proclus said, all of that patriarchy has been reversed on the day of the Annunciation, when God humbled himself to be born of this woman. He actually admits that patriarchy is real, that there has been, read Genesis, right, this unjust dominance of men over women. And the way to reverse that is for God to humble himself underneath and to become a woman and come in, to become, not a woman, to go even more daring, to um, humble himself underneath a woman. That's more daring than a second incarnation where God shows up as, as a woman. And then you have like the twin incarnations, right? And that's how some really bizarre theology of like Mary's a God and Jesus is a God. Is what's more daring is the way he did it, the canonic emptiness of himself to come into the world the way all of us did. And what's so extraordinary is that that means that she has this honored place as the mother of God. And when you say she's the mother of God, which the Council of Ephesus declared to be orthodox doctrine, and which Karl Barth himself said, yeah, we got to get back to that, 
right? Calvin was worried with that about that term, but he did agree about its theological principle. When you say that he is the mother of God, you're, you're proclaiming that what is inside her womb is fully divine. And it's like, and once students realize that, and I say like, oh, everyone, you know, saw this last semester we taught it um, right after the summer. I said, oh, everyone went and saw Wonder Woman. They said, finally, the superhero genre has dignified women. I'm like, no, it hasn't. Because read between the lines. Did you watch that movie closely? Because Wonder Woman's mother had to beg the male Zeus, who is indeed a gendered male god, for the permission to let Wonder Woman into the world. I'm like, that's not the way my gospel reads when I open up Luke. And instead, you have the reverse, the angel requesting to marry. Will you permit God to come into the world through your womb? Come on, that just, all of that preaches. And so that's what these courses have been. It's been this extraordinary exploration. And then, again, we've got our Catholic and Orthodox friends kind of waiting off. See, they're just, they're right about to come to the realization that we've been right all along and they're completely wrong. And that's where we have some disagreements. And so when we read those papal encyclicals closely of specifically Inaffabilis Deus of 1854, which proclaims that Mary is free from original sin from the moment of her conception, that's where we come to a two-point realization. The first is that it is indeed an acceptable Christian position. And the second is that it's not the only acceptable Christian position. So another thing you've done with your students is you've engaged in an art project, mm-hmm. a combination of art history and studio art um, around a project that had to do with a Madonna of Mercy. Yeah. So can you first describe for us, and we'll have to tell people where they can maybe find this online so they can yeah. go reference it, but yeah. if you could kind of set the stage for how this project was born mm-hmm. um, and then tell us what happened. So my friend Bruce Herman and I, who teaches at Gordon, both had our respective campus controversies. And we were, we were bloodied and bruised, as was everyone in this, me much less than others. But we're just weary. That'll just, it'll just suck the life out of you. And we had both agreed three years previously to teaching a semester, uh, I'm sorry, just a month course in Orvieto, Italy, run by Gordon College. And we were just kind of talking through how do you, how do you speak with peace in, in acrimonious times? And, um, but we had had these ideas for the course, and, and we said, you know, we're, we're going to make an image. And the image is a Madonna of Mercy, which is the least Protestant image imaginable. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, so this is um, Mary has her mantle spread out, and all of the Christians have gathered underneath her mantle. And so um, it is... In Italian, it's Madonna della Misericordia or Madonna of Mercy. If you Google either of those, you'll just see a million images come up. And, and, and so it, um, the reason it's critiqued by many Protestants is because where's Jesus in this, right? And what I quickly learned is he, he's actually there because in some of these Madonna of Mercies, you have a little bow around Mary's waist. That's an indicator of pregnancy. So he is there. And so you're actually drawing close to Jesus when you go underneath her mantle. And she also symbolizes the church. And anytime anyone ever says, well, that's not very biblical, I'm like, yeah, God, read the Bible again. One more time through, or even better, skip to the end, Revelation 12. There you'll see the woman clothed with the sun. This is indeed 
an image of Mary as ecclesia, as the encapsulation, the embodiment of the church, the bride of Christ. And so in some senses, we have to understand Mary plays semiotically, symbolically in different ways. And so she can both be a regular woman, and that's very important, um, and even a sinful woman for some Protestants who's redeemed in the exact same way um, as we are. And so long story there. But she also can function symbolically. And so that's what the Madonna of Mercy is. And isn't it interesting, by the way, you've got to remember our chapter divisions in the Bible, of course, are constructions. And if you read Revelation 12, just press rewind real quickly. Read the end of Revelation 11, and you'll see that the Ark of the Covenant is there. What does that mean? Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. Which is to say, in the Ark of the Covenant, you had no image of God. Which is why we were allowed to speak of him as father, but never depict him as father. I think it's a big mistake. You had no image of God. And if Mary is the Ark of the Covenant, that means the first time God is truly imaged is in her womb. And therefore, (laughs) the message of the gospel is, you can't make images, says the Old Testament, because that's my job, says God. I'm going to do it. It's going to be Jesus. It's going to be awesome. And she is the new ark. She's what makes that possible. Which is why, by the way, when you have angels above Mary, that's an Ark of the Covenant um, signal. So all that to say, Revelation 11 and 12. That's the Madonna della Misericordia. That's Mary as the church. And so we said, let's do it. And so I started to read with my art history class sources connected to the Reformation movement in Italy. And there was one. And Michelangelo got swept up in it. It doesn't mean that he was a Protestant because that was illegal, but it does mean that he was touched by the message of grace as mediated to him through the circle of people called the Spirituali. There are wonderful documentaries about this. There's tons of art history out there, but there was indeed a reform circle. Vittoria Colonna, his, what we could call his spiritual director, was in charge and very influential in this circle. And she resided in Orvieto, Italy for a time when she was kind of hiding out from the people that were persecuting her movement. So all this to say, there's a connection there. And so we reference that in the image. We reference a a, a painting connected to Vittoria Colonna and Michelangelo's friendship about the uh, meditating on the idea of God's freely given grace. Okay. And then we, we fused a Madonna della Misericordia, which are all over that region of Italy. But, of course, we put ourselves underneath the mantle. Mm -hmm. And, therefore, we're saying to our Catholic brothers and sisters, hey, we get to be in it, too. (laughs) Um, Of course, we are included. And that's one of the great things about being Protestant is that Orthodox and Catholic Christians can say to an extent, yeah, we accept you as separated brethren, but you're not perfectly in communion with our church. But the problem is... Um, that temptation, um, that uh, I think um, claim is very strong and it might actually be irresistible if only one of them were saying it. <laughs> but there are two of them saying it. And you know, I'm, like, I'm like, you can't both be right, okay? And as, as Ron Ritgers puts it, great Reformation historian, you can't have two moms. You know, which one of you is telling the truth? So one of the great things is as Protestants is we can say that I actually have the liberty theologically to say you are a full member of the body of Christ, Catholic and Orthodox Christians. And God help the poor Protestant out there who thinks that they're the entirety of the church. I mean, there may be a few left, but that's a pretty damning position to really think you're everything. 
Uh, we don't make that claim. So anyway, so we put ourselves underneath. And it might seem you know, kind of arrogant to put yourself under the mantle of the Virgin, but you got to understand that every single person who ended up getting painted into it registered their objection. They didn't want to be. But we nevertheless conceded to allowing ourselves to be depicted there to make that point that we are part of the body of Christ. And then we found ways to incorporate the global body of Christ as well, which we can talk about too. Um, so where would people go to find this particular image? So if you, you yeah, if you um, just Googled, um, this is at the um, Studio for Art, Faith, and History. Or it, um, it's at the Gordon College website hosts this, and there's a long article with all of these images and everything that I described. Um, and if you just um, Googled um, a new Madonna of Mercy in Orvieto, um, y- it won't be hard to find. It's a very public and available article with all the images beautifully there, along with um, pictures of the students who were involved and, and all of the different art historical reference. Mm-hmm. So, like, how do we navigate an image-driven world yeah. as people of faith who want to see the world in theological ways? And mm-hmm. that's, that's a great question. I There is a sense in which um, just when we people in the tradition, whether it's Reformed or, or, or Calvinist or Baptist, right? Just when we've said, oh gosh, our iconoclastic heritage, isn't it awful? Let's get into art. Just at the moment where that process has concluded and we're ready to say, please forgive us for our iconoclasm, an iconoclastic movement, a good and righteous iconoclastic movement has swept through our country with the removal of Confederate monuments. Isn't that funny? Isn't that a pattern of Christianity? We're so embarrassed about this part of our tradition. Please forgive us. Oh, let's just bury that just when you might need it the most. And so I think now we have to say, you're darn right we have an iconoclastic past because as you remove these monuments, we can boldly raise our hands and say, yeah, that's what Christians did in the pagan world. We took down the statues of Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, and we said only Jesus is Lord. We did do that. And so I think that if you are part of the Reformed tradition, you've got to understand that that is so important, that Calvin was on to something, and maybe his ideas are even more important for our own time as it was for the 16th century, which didn't even begin to see the complexities and the the visual saturation that we have now. You've been listening to The Distillery. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. Our research and production team members are Garrett Mistowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. If you like what you're hearing, let us know by rating us on iTunes, or better yet, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more great resources for Christian theology and ministry on The Thread at the URL thethread.ptsem.edu. Once again, that's thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.